Oh, Heavenly Father, um, we are in awe before you because we recognize that you are a glorious, absolutely perfect and beautiful God who was absolutely satisfied, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and did not need anything but chose to create us knowing that we would rebel. You sacrificed your son to make us your children and we, again, in awe before that, recognize it's an amazing thing and that's why we're sinning to your glory. That's why we pray and ask for your help because we recognize that we need you. But we're coming to your word right now, the words of Christ to be specific, and we want to sit at his feet. We want to learn from him. And we know that we need your help for that too. Because our hearts are hard and our lives are difficult and our minds are everywhere else but at the feet of Christ right now. And, and we need you to bring that focus back upon you, upon him. We want to really hear what you have to say and be transformed by your word, forged into the image of Christ. So please, Lord, um, be with the preacher, limited and human as he is, to, uh, to preach your word. And be with the hearts of us all to apply what you have said, to be transformed by what you have said, to live out what you have said. We recognize, Lord, that without your help, we will not be doers, but only hearers. So here we are, weak and pathetic, saying, please, Father, teach us and change us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, so once again, I would like to ask everyone to use your sanctified imagination and bring yourself back at the feet of 11 men eating a Passover meal with their rabbi. And this is probably not the first one they've had. If you think about it, three and a half years, they've probably had more than one Passover together. Yet this one is different, right? This time, he got on his knees and he washed their feet and said something cryptic about the fact that he's going to, all of them are washed but one saying that one of them would betray Jesus and he would be delivered over to the Romans to be killed. Wait, what? We gave three and a half years of our lives and it's all over? What about us? Right? You can feel the anxiety and the fear building in the room. What's going to happen now? And it's in that context that we have the upper room discourse. This typical Jesus sermon where he'll touch on different subjects they need to hear to prepare themselves for this amazing thing they're about to do, right? Turn the world upside down. Continue his work of building the church. Now, we're about to finish chapter 14 of John. And I think it'd be good for us in the fact that we're finishing to get the full context of it, remind ourselves of everything else he's been saying so to read the fullness of the chapter all while focusing on those last couple of verses. Now, I would like to ask you if you please stand for the reading of God's word. So chapter 14 of John and verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, 
and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I will live, I will, because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and the Father in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Now here's our text. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk with you much. For the rule of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But, as, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. You may be seated. Hopefully you notice when we get to those last couple of verses that he's really concluding his point. Now that's why chapter division 
work some time, and chapter 15 is starting a new point. We can see that. We see that he's going over some of the things he's already said. And I think we're going to do the same thing to remind ourselves of where we are right now. Well, Jesus told them to take away the fear by believing in God and believing in him also. Or in other words, the same way you believe in the Father, you are to believe in me. Which is kind of weird. Because God has said many times in the Old Testament, you will have no other gods before you but me. You will put no trust in no other god but me. And when they did go to other gods, it went very badly for them. So Jesus, are you asking us to be idolaters? Because that's not a good idea. No, because he tells them, I and the Father are one. And he goes along proving that him and the Father are one, that Jesus is God. Right? He, he, he starts by telling them that no one goes to the Father but through him because he's the life, he's the truth, he's the way. And just those little words mean a lot. God is the God of truth. In him there is no lie. He is the one that gives life and sustains it because he's the one that has life in him, being the great I am, the self-sufficient one. So he's using terms to say, that's me. He even moves along and says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That says a lot because that takes us back all the way to Mount Sinai and the first covenant, the old covenant, where God gave commandments and laws they must obey. And Moses kind of boiled it down by saying, you must love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your soul, your person, and all your strength. He's Jesus saying the same thing. And don't forget that just a little bit before, during the meal, he gave the cup and said, what, this is the cup of the new covenant with my blood being spilled for you like blood was spilled in the first covenant. Again, I'm saying I'm God. So you tell me that God is father and son? Whoa. And he's not finished yet, right? Because he adds the spirit to the mix, telling them that him and the father will come and live with those who love him, but at the same time saying it's the spirit. So God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. I can't imagine the disciples at this moment, their jaw dropping, their eyes bugging out. What is he telling us, right? Kind of weird, kind of radical for these men to hear. And yet this is what they need to hear for what they have to do. They need these truth, right? This doctrine, if you will, this theology, whatever words you want to use, it's still the idea that they need to hear that for what they're about to face. And we see as we begin how the importance of these words, because in verse 25, he starts by saying, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. You can kind of feel this, I'm about to conclude aspect here, right? And he says, spoken. Um, that's kind of important, this idea of speaking or saying, because it undergirds everything that's happening in the conclusion. All at once. Okay, I was hoping one after the other, but I messed up. So, as you can see right away, verse 26 is going to remind them that the Holy Spirit's going to remind them everything he said. In verse 28, he's going to tell them, I said something before, and you need to remember that. And ultimately, he's going to say, I have told you all of this so that. And he's going to get to his main point. So, this idea of teaching or saying is of great importance. 
Hence my subtitles, his words. It's, it's all about what he has to say. So speaking and teaching seems important to Jesus. And we're going to get some help for that because he says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, right? Coming back to this advocate, this comforter, the one that comes next to you and supports you. Whatever translation you use, it's all the same idea. He is the Holy Spirit. Now, the disciples knew about the Spirit. He's in the Old Testament. The thing is, the Spirit in the Old comes on specific people for specific tasks, right? Moses, the 70 elders, the judges, he comes upon them to do a specific task. You had the kings like David. You had the prophets like Elisha. But here's the idea that the Spirit it's for all of them. Huh? Right? That's why Peter will pick up on the, the words of Joel, bring it in his sermon in Acts 2, and say, this is now. And where many like to focus on the dreams and visions, Peter is focusing on the fact that the Spirit is for everybody now. Men, women, old, young, everyone in this new family of believers will have this helper, this advocate with them, God in them. Wow. And he will continue right now, Jesus, to teach about doctrine. He's going to tell them again about the Trinity, whom the Father will send in my name. So the Father sends the Spirit who represents the Son. That's why Paul can say, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, even though technically it's the Spirit that's living in him. Because the Spirit is one with the Son, who is one with the Father, who is all one God. And again, this is what they need to hear. They need to know the Father is sending the Spirit, and He represents the Son, and it's God on their side. They need to hear this truth so they can face what they have to face. So what's this Spirit going to do? Miracles, right? Give us gifts. Well, yes, but that's not where Jesus is going to go. Actually, He's going to say, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Again, we see it's the idea of teaching and what he said already. There seems to be a difference between the all things and the remembrance things, right? Remembrance things probably focusing on his three years and a half of ministry. And be careful not to get caught up in the red letters because John makes it clear Jesus thought, other things that are not written down. Other things the disciples knew, but we don't have written down. But the Spirit will remember that, will remind them of it, so then they can share it. But there's a difference between that and the all things, right? It seems to be new things. What would that mean? Well, I think a really good example will be the ministry of Paul. Think of Ephesians chapter 3. Paul will talk about this mystery that was kind of hinted at in the Old Testament, but he was given a revelation to share it with us, and that's how the Jews and the Gentiles form one people now. Right? That's not something Christ thought about, because his focus was on who? The lost sheep of Israel. He'll hint at the fact that there's sheep in another fold, but he'll focus, and he'll tell the apostles to focus on the lost sheep of Israel. But here's Paul coming along and saying, no, the Gentiles also included. That's the new things, the old things. Another good example, 
1 Corinthians 7. You know that passage about marriage, divorce, and remarriage? And he'll tell us how Jesus taught us that the one clause for divorce is adultery. But I say, not in the sense I'm making up new doctrine, in the sense the Spirit is guiding me to add to a new thing here, and that's that clause of abandonment. So that's the remembrance things connected with the all things that I think Jesus is getting at here. But we can't miss that they kind of come together. Yeah, they come together, and we see that in the second book of Luke, or if you prefer, Act. In Acts chapter 1, verse 1, we read, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The began aspect means what he taught during, during his three years and a half. But it also means he still has stuff to add. The problem is, before the end of chapter 1, he's going to be gone. So how does he add? Well, his apostles, right? Or if you prefer, his epistles. That's how he adds the old things. That's why it's kind of dangerous for those who say, I'm just a follower of Jesus and what he taught in the Gospels. Because here's Jesus saying, no, there's more. I'm going to send the Spirit to give more of my own teaching. So this is what they need. They need this teaching, this truth, right? The full revelation of God. And we want to say a hearty amen to that. But here's the thing. How many of us feed on the word every single day? How many kind of put it aside a few days? I don't really feel it right now. And then we don't feel it more and more and more, right? Let's push it even further. How many take the time to study the word, to try to make sense of what God is saying, to wrestle with the text and not just take a little life verse for myself. That little verse, mm, it's good for me. Is that what Jesus is getting at? The Spirit is going to give you life verses? No, he's going to teach you all things. He's going to remind you everything I've said. I know the plans I have to prosper you, says the Lord. But the problem is, he said that to Israel about to go into exile. He said that about the fact that Babylon was going to come in, ravage the land, destroy everything, kill a bunch of people, take them into deportation for 70 years, and he says that is a plan to prosper you because I'm chastising you. I'm disciplining you for your good. And I'm not Israel in exile, and neither are you. But can I apply it somehow in my life? If you jump to the New Testament, you can. Hebrews chapter 12. God disciplines us for our good to produce fruit. That's the mind of God. That's wrestling with the fullness of his revelation to get to all things and the remembrance things for our good, like it was for them. So this is what they needed. And from the Spirit, Jesus will now move back to himself and say, peace, I leave with you. Wow. Wow. What's this peace that he's promising them? Because they're certainly going to need it. Well, let's start by what it's not. It is not an end of striving or difficulty or problems. Because he adds to this, not as the world gives, do I give to you. What's the world's definition of peace? No war, no battles, no problems. That's not what Jesus is saying. Neither is it everything is going to be all right, kumbala. 
No, because the false prophets of the Old Testament and the modern ear ticklers of our days are saying the same thing. And here's what God has to say to them. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And everything's going to work out. Babylon's not going to come back. Don't worry, guys. God says that that's not the message of peace. That's not what you guys need. So it's clearly not what Christ is getting at. So what kind of peace is it? Let me take a sip of water first. Well, clearly it's an inner peace because the word talks about fullness or wholeness. Now, not an inner peace as the Buddhists where you transcend everything and you float above the problems. Not an inner peace like the Stoic where you just take in and you're not affected by anything. But it's an inner peace because it's focused on the one who's inside of us, Christ. As Paul tells the Philippians, do not be anxious about anything But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Where's that peace going to be? In Christ Jesus. But don't miss the beginning of this little passage, right? Be not anxious about anything which would make us think maybe I can't be bothered by things. I can't be disturbed by things. Well, he adds in everything. So that means there will be stuff that will bring you to prayer. It means you can be affected by what's going on. You can't be disturbed. You can't focus on it. Instead, you bring it in prayer. Prayer with thanksgiving, right? Focus back on God. And that way, it will be on Christ. Think of an elastic Weird image, I know. Elastic can be stretched out, right? It gets very thin. It might have little breaks here and there. But ultimately, when you let it go, it gets back to its right shape. Its wholeness, its fullness. Well, this elastic of our peace is connected to the cross, the big old nail. It can be stretched out, but in prayer, we focus back upon the cross, and it gets back into shape. Now, I say it's a peace that can be affected but not destroyed because Jesus adds, my peace I give to you. Now, what's your point, Martin? Glad you asked. This is the man, the God-man, who will just a few hours from now tell his disciples that he's troubled unto death. He's going to walk away from them, fall to the floor, and ask the Father to pass the cup away from him. Is he being troubled at that moment? I would say, yeah. Did he still have perfect peace, being the perfect God? I would still say yes to that too. Having peace doesn't mean we don't get troubled. It means we're not destroyed by the trouble. It means this elastic still keeps his wholeness and his shape. As they did and we are having trouble and difficulty, yet this peace remains And these prayers with thanksgiving brings us back to the one who will keep us in this peace. So this is what he's promising them. He also adds to that later on his love and his joy. Right? Christ is leaving a lot behind for them. It's actually interesting when you read some of the church fathers, the first writers and stuff, they'll focus a lot about this trifecta 
of love, joy, and peace. Because that's what Christ promised them, and they're really focused on this is what we have as believers, guys. We need to hold on to this, another part of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, and peace. This is what Christ is giving them. But he will continue, though, to teach them and to encourage them because their hearts are troubled and they're fearful. Right? Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. He's talking about this peace because they need this peace. It's interesting to realize that there's still a sense where there, there's fear in the room even after everything Jesus is saying. Well, we can understand, right? Because some of the stuff he's saying is way past their heads. Right? The Trinity? What? Yeah, their hearts are troubled and they're afraid. This negative attitude, emotions cannot be there, guys. And it must be, if you will, contrasted or battled by love and rejoicing, as we see in the next verse. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Don't have a troubled and fearful heart having said this love for me and this rejoicing. Now, some of the commentators say that he's rebuking the disciples, telling them, you guys, you're so selfish. Focus on yourself. You should be loving me instead and rejoicing that I'm going back to the Father. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here because he's already told them a disciple loves me. He's just going back to that. He's just telling them what he's already said. You guys, focus on what I've said. Love me. Keep your focus on me. He's even going to start this verse by saying, you heard me say to you, right? Again, what I've taught you is what's important. I'm going away and I will come to you. Now, this most probably is aiming at the fact that he would leave during his death, but he would come back in his resurrected, glorified form and be with them for 40 days. That's the idea of coming back here that I believe he's aiming at because after he's going to be talking about going to the Father. So I'm going, but I'm going to come back though. That's why you shouldn't be fearful, but instead in this love for me, be rejoicing because I'm going to the Father. Ultimately, I'm going to prepare a place for you as I've promised, and then I'll come back to get you. Yet it's interesting because he doesn't repeat those words this time. He actually says, for the Father is greater than I. Interesting. Now, of course, the uh, more liberal commentators and the religious folks love this little passage right here because they say, you see, aha, proof. Jesus says himself, he's a lesser being than God. No, he's not. He spent the whole chapter saying that he is one with God, that he is God. So that's not what he's saying here. And I don't think I have to convince anybody that he's, not, he's saying that he's a lesser being. So what is he saying, though? Why is he mentioning the fact that the Father is greater than I? Well, as we will move along in a very future date, we will see in chapter 15 that he's going to talk about how the Father is the vine dresser who bears fruit in us. In chapter 16, he's going to focus on the fact of turning to the Father in prayer to get all we need to bear fruit. And ultimately, in chapter 17, he's going to come and ask the Father, pray to him. Now, it's interesting when you realize that the few prayers we have of Jesus, almost all of them is just him praising God for what he's done. This is the only time he actually asked 
anything of God? Because the Father is greater. He wants the his disciples to focus on the Father because what did Christ come to do other than dying on the cross, of course, to reveal the Father? He is the express image of the Father. He came to point back to the Father. He is the door by which we enter to be with the Father. But I would say moreover than that, he's talking about the fact the Father is greater because right now, Jesus in his human incarnate state, right? He's limited. He can't be everywhere with everyone. He's not going to be eternal with them right now because he's in a human body that dies out. We see the same argumentation also in John 16 about the spirit. He tells them, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The idea, the spirit who's going to live in each and every one of you around the world far better than one rabbi in Jerusalem. The spirit is going to be with you forever far better than a guy who's going to die. And I believe that's the same kind of thing he's doing. He's focusing on the father because that's what their focus needs to be now. Yet that doesn't take away from the son because the father honors the son. And so Christ will continue to keep the focus on himself. And now I have told you before it takes place, right? Everything I've been saying, I'm going to go away, but I'll come back to be with you. Then the spirit will come and I'm going to be away preparing a place. I've said these things so that, so that when it does take place, you may believe. You may trust, put your confidence in me and what I've said and what I've promised. And this idea of believing is very important to the Apostle John. It comes back around again and again throughout his uh, gospel. We see it in the story of Lazarus. Right? Jesus did not go and let Lazarus actually die. And there's a reason for it. He explains it. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. So that you may believe. But let, not, let us go to him. Believe that I can do miracles? Believe that I can resurrect the dead? No. Believe in me. Recognize that I am the son of God. Are you sure of that, Martin? Glad you asked. Because John himself will tell us in his thesis statement, at the end of his book, chapter 20, he will say, but these are written. What's these? Chapter 11. Chapter 14, where we are. These are written so that you may believe that what? Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the belief. That's the focus on the cross, trusting in that work. And we'll see as we go along with the last two verses, the focus is on this amazing, perfect work that Christ is about to do. He will continue by saying, I will no longer talk much with you, which is interesting. Let's a lot of commentators get confused, honestly. And I won't share with you the details of everything they have to say. But why is he saying that I'm about to finish talking if he still has two more chapters to say? 
What's the point of saying these next couple of words, guys, you need to pay attention for the rule of this world is coming. You need to focus on this ruler of the world, huh? the prince of the power of the air, the devil. Why do you need to focus on the devil, Jesus? He has no claim on me. That's why. I have no sin. That's why. These words brings us back to that faithful moment in the beginning of his ministry, what we usually call the temptation or the testing of Jesus. We need to understand that moment of 40 days being attacked by the devil and those three last explosions of temptations are not first and foremost, not primarily about teaching us how to defeat the devil. It's not first and foremost about how to face temptation. You can glean from it, but the first point is to show us that he is truly the perfect second Adam who does not flinch before the devil. That he is the perfect Israel who does not fail God in the wilderness. That is a big spotlight to show us that he is the spotless lamb of God before he starts his ministry. That's the point. And now the devil is going to come around and do the same thing, point to how Christ is perfect. Right? That's what he says in the next verse. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. It's not as clear in the ESV, but in the NIV, you can see it a bit better. It says, he, the devil, has no hold over me, but he, the devil, comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. That's the point. As Martin Luther so beautifully said, the devil is God's devil. In a sense that it's a tool in his arsenal to accomplish his plans. Or as John Calvin so beautifully said, sometimes, sometimes God writes his plan with a crooked pen. And that crooked pen is the devil and his minions. Right? Sometimes God sends an evil spirit to torment an evil Saul. Sometimes he sets spirits of lying in prophets to send an evil king to his judgment. Sometimes he sends the Assyrian to bring judgment upon the earth and then turns around and punishes them because they acted in evil arts. God had a perfect and glorious and holy plan because that's who he is, but he still used these evil things. Now, the devil acted completely voluntarily. He wanted to come and destroy the plan of God. What he didn't know is God put a big magnifying glass behind his back and he used him to spotlight on Jesus, on how he would be faithful all the way to the end, to the cross. That's the point. That's the focus. It's all about the work of the cross. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one seeks after him, no, not one. I'm sorry, Mr. Religious Person. What you are seeking for is a God of your making. For God has said that he is three times holy, and we are to be perfect as he is perfect, and that's nobody, because he tells us that all of us are children of the devil. All of us are his enemies. All of us deserve judgment. But God, who's rich in mercy, put that judgment on his son. He was without sin and the devil came to prove it, even though he didn't know that's what he was doing. 
He came to prove he was without sin, yet he made him sin for us. Right? In faith, we believe that he died in our place and resurrected for our justification. Yet, this isn't just about that moment of conversion and salvation. Because even though he's trying to get these disciples to focus on the cross for their eternal life, it's not only that. It's so they can be equipped to make more disciples. So they can be equipped to face these trials that is before them. So they can be able to calm their troubled hearts. And how they will do that? Well, believing, trusting, putting the confidence in Christ. Not necessarily he's going to fix all their problems. Definitely not. He's told them, right? They hated me. They'll hurt you. They'll bring you before the synagogues. You're going to suffer, guys. Believe me. And it's easy for us to kind of be detached from this story. That's why we need to like, bring ourselves back 2,000 years, put ourselves in their shoes. They're about to see their rabbi in the middle of the night taken from them by many armed men. Scary, right? No wonder most of them fleed. But two of them follow from afar. One of them, the rock, ends up denying him and going home crying. There's still one more, though. Right? Don't forget that there was one apostle at the cross, John. How hard must that have been, right? You're looking up at your Savior choking on his own blood, dying, and telling you, take care of my mom. I can almost imagine his mind, wait, isn't God going like, to deliver you at the last minute? Right? That's what God does. Great miracles. Oh, no, you're actually going to die. The despondency after that, right? The despair, the discouragement. Three days go by. What are we going to do? We're all going to die. We, we hear rumblings that the tomb is empty. People saying that they've seen him, but, and then he shows up. And he's with them for about 40 days. But then he literally leaves right in front of their eyes. And remember, they, they still look up. They, they can't stop staring even though he's not there anymore because there's like a hope. Maybe he's going to come down with like a million angels and make everything right again. But he doesn't. No, no, angels have to tell them, go back and wait for the next part of the promise, the coming of the Spirit. Like I said, we're fully detached from that because when we believe we receive the Spirit, we didn't live these moments, yet we've also lived troubles and trials and difficulties, right? And if I put a microphone up here and ask everyone to share what these last couple of years or even just weeks have been like, there'd be a lot of tears, I'm sure of it. And we're still called the same thing they are. Believe. Trust. Put your confidence in me. Yeah, but you don't know what I've been through. How everything seems to be going wrong. I can't control anything. But all things work together for those who love him, who are called to call according to his purposes. And his great purpose is to make us like Christ. To fill the earth with the beauty of Jesus. Yeah, but... You don't know everything I've lost, everything I've sacrificed, I've given up. But didn't Christ promise that everything we give up, we would get more here, but even better than that, eternal life? That the Father is one showing, the, wants to show the world that He is our supreme treasure. That heaven's not about uh, having stuff, it's about being with Him forever. Yeah, but you don't know how hard the battle with the flesh has been. You don't know how the devil's been kicking me way too many times. Yeah, but he who started this good work will finish it. 
that as you're working at your salvation with fear and trembling and failure also, he's the one giving you the willing and the doing according to his good pleasure. He's the one working in us what is pleasing to him. I don't mean to make light of anything we're going through, but the fact still remains, the main focus is on believing, trusting in him. It's sad that as Christians, we, be, we, be, we start with, we begin with the cross as being the focal point, right? All I need is that cross, and then we quickly walk away from that, don't we? We start focusing on everything else and stop that simple, childlike, just trusting him, and that's it. May the Lord open our eyes like the servant of the prophet Elisha, but not to see fire charts of, of healing and miracles, but to see the beauty of Jesus and to just trust. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we uh, confess our weakness. We confess our difficulties. We confess our doubts and unbeliefs. And I don't think I'm just speaking for myself here. But we recognize how much you have proven yourself to us, how much you've done to show us that we can trust you. Please forgive us for that. And please help our unbelief once again. Help us to bring that focus upon your son, upon his work on the cross, and to just trust. Lord, you're coming back to be with you forever, and that's supposed to be our ultimate end, our main focus. Forgive us that we've let ourselves be distracted by everything else. Please help us to truly um, let it all go and just grab hold of the cross once again. Help us, Lord Jesus, as you help your disciples to get it. It's all about believing you. We ask because without you, we're not going to make it. We're going to leave this place saying, yes, of course, amen. And then we're not going to do anything about it. And we're just going to distrust and be bothered and be frustrated about everything. We need your help, Lord. We need your help. Help our unbelief. Open our eyes to see. Strengthen our trust in you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.